And grab your Bibles and turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. Uh, we were wanting to look at the entire chapter. It's not that long of a chapter. Um, but it is a chapter like this when if you can make it through the, the, the 11 chapters of deep theology, uh, this chapter becomes well worth our investment. So Romans 13, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, and uh, we'll read the entire chapter. Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now. And when we first believe, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, uh, not in revelries and drunkenness, uh, nor not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Good Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask that you would um, transform us by the power of grace, that you would do it again today. Uh, this is a simple passage. We could all read it, understand it, and apply it. Um, but let it be, as we walk out here, that is exactly what it is that we do. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of shall we pray. Amen. You know what to do. Did you know Mount Everest is not the tallest mountain in the world? That's right. What your teacher told you in grade school was fake news. If you're on the right, if you're on the left, it's disinformation, okay? Did I cover everybody, everyone, you know, uh, in their echo chamber, well satisfied? It is technically not. Now, by one definition, you could say that it is, but if we want to be technical, it indeed is not. The tallest mountain in the world is actually a dormant volcano that I will mispronounce in Hawaii called Mauna Kea, uh, and it is arguably taller. I think I got a, a picture up here. There you go. This is, uh, they're at the top um, of, of their, uh, so if you're ever in Hawaii, uh, go up there and take, take, take a few pictures uh, for me. Its highest point, so where they're standing right there, presumably, its highest point is not higher than Everest. In fact, uh, it stands 13,796 feet above sea level. That is less than half the height of Everest. However, if you measure the height of a mountain, not by how high it is from sea level, but its actual uh, uh, greatness below sea and above sea, it actually does surpass it. 
So it is uh, half the height of Everest, but when you go below the sea, you add it all up, it becomes the tallest mountain, and it beats Everest by over 1,600 feet. In other words, this dormant volcano is taller below the sea than it is above the sea. And so when you look at it, by comparison, it is significantly smaller. But when you dig under the surface, you see that it is considerably greater. I think we could say something similar about the book of Romans, and particularly as we come to chapter 13. You come to chapter 13, and it is not dense at all. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, you, you, you can read it and understand it for yourself. You don't need a, a, a cemetery degree to, to help you with that. However, coming on the heels of 11 chapters of real deep theology means that when, if we would follow what it is Paul says here, what people will see may not be impressive, but is rooted in, with, with deep roots and is founded with, with great truths and uh, 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 and is greater than what we, we, we may appear. So there's three things that Paul lays out here for us in terms of the very basics of what does a Christian look like, right? Because he's laid out what is the gospel, right? And we talk about justification by faith alone, the first four or five chapters. In chapters six to eight, you know, roughly, uh, is oversimplification. He's going to talk about sort of sanctification issues, right? Libertarianism on one, legalism on the other, suffering as well in chapter eight. And in, and in chapter uh, uh, nine through 11, he's going to deal with some of the questions of, the, of, of how do we read the Old Testament and, and the promises made to the Jews and the Gentiles being grafted in and all that sort of stuff. But as he comes here, he's given a simple application that is rooted in those deep truths, which means nothing hero makes sense without that foundation, without that depth. So here it is. The first thing Paul describes, the very basics of what does a Christian look like is, first of all, submission. Oh, here it is. Uh, uh, by the way, if you go top of the mountain, the, uh, there's satellites all over the place uh, because uh, it, you're farther away from, from city lights and whatnot. Go to Google Earth and look this up. I think you'll find it fascinating. That's a, my plug. Moving on. Submission. Okay. The first thing, submission. Now, submission is the quintessential Christian um, uh, character, is the Christian position, is that we are called to submit. Can I give you just a few examples from the Bible? Uh, I took some out, so we'll just limit this to, to the New Testament. Ephesians 5, and do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. By the way, thank you everyone who texts me the lyrics to Flesh and Blood by Johnny Cash. Thank you. I could not think of that, right? As I walked out of here, it finally jumped in my mind. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one for me, or something like that, right? So, so thank you, right? See, we're talking to each other in psalms, spiritual songs, and old country music uh, 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 ballads, right? You know? So there you go. Um, Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Here it is. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice that the root there, the foundation of submission is faith. That as Christ has submitted himself to the will of the Father, so we are called to submit ourselves first to the will of, of the Father, but really to each other. By the way, does anyone have an idea what the next verse says? Wives to your husbands. If, I, if, if, you, if you go to Ephesians 5.22, the word submit or be subject in the New American Standard does not exist. It's not in the Greek. Why? Because what Paul is saying, he's already introduced the language of submission to all believers. 
So what he asks of wives towards husbands fits within the context of what he asks Christians of Christians. Why? Because we are to have the position of submission. Same thing in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's again the attitude of submission. Submission. Finally, let me give you one more. Uh, James 4, 7. Submit excuse me, yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, I served at the church one time where uh, this was like their favorite verse, unofficially, right? And not like every sermon just came up, right? It was more of a fire and brimstone sort of setting. And they're always like, the Bible says, resist the devil, he flee from you. And then, of course, I'm looking at the Bible like, you skip the first half. What's the first half? Submit. In other words, you cannot resist the devil apart from submission, Submission is the position of the Christian. But to be clear, we are not to confuse submission with inequality. This is a big error we make as Americans. Because if, if we say unless things are same, there is inequality. And that, that is it's just not, not really common sense. Is, is, that, is that too harsh? It's just, just, just not, not, not how it works. Your expectation of me as a man is different. Your expectation of my wife as a woman, right? It's just the way it is, right? Um, uh, we, we, we are not the same as men and women, young and, and old and everywhere in between. So to submit to authority is not to admit inferiority. Can I prove it to you biblically? There's this guy in the Bible called God. And, and God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And within the mystery and the dance of the Trinity, what you have is this act of, a, of, of, of submission and, and whatnot. So, so Jesus will, will, will say in the Gospels, I submit to the Father and do all that he tells me to do. So God, not my will, but yours. So too, have you noticed that the majority of the songs we sing, crown him, crown him, right? We are singing of praise of Christ. Not at the, at, at the risk of not worshiping the Father or the Spirit, but it is the ministry, particularly of the Spirit, to draw our attention to the Son. So he is submitting his own, not glory in this, but, but he's submitting his need for, for praise so that to see too that we are worshiping the Son. And we worship all three members of the Trinity, all equally divine, and we worship one God. But what you get within the mysterious dance of the Trinity is the understanding that though they are equal in essence, equal in, in being, there is distinction between them. The Father initiates redemption, the Son propitiates for redemption, and while the Spirit regenerates us in redemption. So, so, so you need all three parts, and that requires this, this dance of submission and, and authority. But, it, but that does not mean one is lesser than the other. Now, this is equally true when it comes to the governments. Paul is concerned here with our, our relationship with government. I can't imagine that would ever be controversial among Christians in the 21st century because we are so enlightened. But, but, but if it is true that submission does not mean inequality— Therefore, submission to government is not the surrender of our freedom or identity to that government as if it is somehow superior to us. We have to view these terms through biblical lens. We are not inferior to either government or its officials. 
Elected officials and those in power, biblically speaking, are our equal. They are our neighbors. Therefore, we are obligated to pray for them, love them, serve them, and everything else the Bible says about our neighbor. That doesn't mean we don't vote out the rascals, I guess. Doesn't mean that we, we do not be clear on certain issues that may come up in the political sphere. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying our, 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 our general status in relationship to government is, is that of our neighbors are seeking to lead us well. What they need more than anything is not a keyboard warrior complaining about tax policy or nuclear proliferation. What they need from me is love, service, and prayer. So let's talk briefly about what it is Paul says here. To do so, we, we, need, we need to get a few things out of the way. We can't go in any detail, nor do I want to, uh, to, be, to be frank with you. But, but uh, a couple of things in terms of, of, of when we, we approach, because when it comes to our relationship with government, Romans 13 is an important one, these first seven verses here. First of all, we need to know Rome is the capital of, get this, Rome. Right. Rome is the capital of Rome. And Paul is writing to, I hope you're listening quickly, the Romans who dwell in Rome. Are you following me? Do I need to talk slower? Right. So, so he is writing to believers in the capital city. And maybe we'll look at chapter 16 Wednesday. I, I don't know. Uh, any, any, you know, we're, we're technically going to skip it. Uh, because if you trace those names, many of them, their names, not, we, we can't say for sure they are state workers or federal workers, I guess, but we can trace some of those names within the federal governments. So it makes sense that within Rome, you might have people who work for the governments. Much in the same way, if, if, if this were a church in a state capital, there would be a good chance some of our members might work for the state government. Aren't you glad we don't live in the state capital? Aren't you, aren't you glad for that, right? No, no, no it, it makes sense. So it's not accidental then that Paul is addressing in greater detail in this letter about the Christian role with the state uh, than he does in, in some others. The second thing I want us to see here is that everything Paul writes here is consistent with what Jesus says. So uh, the best example here, of course, Matthew 21, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And that has always been, been understood that, that you do not give your worship or your loyalty to the state. You give it exclusively to your Savior, who is your creator and redeemer. However, we do have certain obligations when it comes to the state. And as Paul mentions here, that includes honor, revenue, and taxes. Unfortunately, that part is in the Bible, isn't it? Right? But, but we do have our responsibility. There is a limit to that, but we do have responsibility. Thirdly, we need to note, Paul will soon be executed by this very government he is commanding Christians to submit to. This is something I've noticed, particularly among the right and among Christians that bothers me is that when the left wins, the right says, I owe you no obligation. When the right wins, the left will say, I owe you no obligation. That should bother you as an American. It should really bother you. Because on the one, we'll call it disinformation. On the other, we'll just call it fake news. That should really bother you. Paul is asking Christians to submit to a tyrannical government that will murder many of them. That is worth meditating upon. At no point in the New Testament do the commands in our relationship to the government change. 
What you do see, particularly through John's writings, is a proper understanding of what government ultimately is. It is the beast. So on the one hand, you have Christians submitting to the government because that is the position of Christians in general, that we submit to, to, to authority. On the other end is the recognition there is no salvation to be found here. The government will all, eventually, particularly empire, will become like the beast, and the beast will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation is one of the most political books you'll find in, in the Bible. But Paul here will be executed. He doesn't fight, he submits, never surrendering his call to preach the gospel. Because that calling comes from one greater than governments and will not be submitted to government. So with that said, let's quickly, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. First of all, notice submission to, to, to ruling authorities reflects one's submission to God, verses 1 to 4. Um, and so he, he says there, right, um, uh, verse 1, let every person be subject, submit to the government authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Very clear that submission to, to, to government authorities reflects one's submission to God. So those who are rebellious against, well, I don't like this bill, he ain't my president, and I didn't like him to begin with, that doesn't fly in the New Testament. It doesn't fly at all. But rather than say, all government is given by institution of God, and they may, they, they may thwart that responsibility, they may abuse that responsibility, but we understand God has placed in, uh, in our world certain institutions that should be respected and require submission. For example, marriage. Marriage is an institution given to us by God by which there is the role of submission within it. Family, an institution given to us by God, by which in order for it to function well, there must be mutual submission. The community square, our neighbors, that in order for it to function well, to get along with your neighbors, is going to require some submission and service and, and, and sacrifice, right? We, we, we get this. And the government's no different. However, in a modern America, there's no greater authority than the self. And when the self is the highest authority, submission becomes a dirty word. And so... To reject me, if you reject me, then you are not a legitimate authority. But that's what sinners do. That's not what Christians are called to do. And Paul, Paul's argument here is that government's primary responsibility is to curve violence and lawlessness. Its first responsibility is that. Does it do it perfectly? No. Paul is going to be executed unjustly. And he can be executed while at the same time, everyone acknowledged government is instituted by God. God has raised up Nero, who will soon be, become Caesar and, 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 and have him beheaded. And with that is true, we can still confess this is unjust and let it, let, it, let it fall. Well, Paul concludes by suggesting that the position of submission is liberty. Liberty. So he says there in verses 5 to 7 that when when we are confronted, when we are hated, when we are persecuted, we do so with free consciousness. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. We are not called to be rebels. We are called to be servants. So to Paul, the, 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 the liberty of a conscience is important. We pay our taxes. We love our neighbors. We serve in our community. Because that is true freedom. That's the irony you get within the Bible. When we submit, we are free. Try this within your marriage. Try to get your way and insist upon your way and then tell me how miserable you are. 
Your spouse will be miserable too. That goes without saying, right? And I'm on their side. But you will be miserable. Why, why, why can't they just do everything I ask, right? We were supposed to leave that behind. We were four. But if you lovingly submit yourself one to another, you'll find you are both given gifts, and that is better than entitlements. Submission is a type of freedom. Can I prove this to you historically? I believe he's from the second or third uh, century. An early apologist, of course, we call them apologists instead of theologians because they, they, they were all being martyred, right? And so what they write is more apologetic than it is theological. You don't, get really, you don't really get deep theological writings among Christians till the 4th or 5th century because of persecution for three, four years. So Justin Martyr is what we call him because, spoiler alert, he dies as a martyr, right? I mean, what a story that that becomes your last name. Well, I actually love to read Justin Martyr's first apology. His second one's good, too, so it's significantly shorter. His first apology is quite good. And, and in it, he explains to Caesar, why are you bothering us? Don't you get it? We're like on your side in one sense. Notice what, he, notice what he writes here. Everywhere we, more ready than all men, endeavor to pay taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Christ. Whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as our kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, you should leave us alone because we are not going to be a problem with you. He says, but notice this. You come after us because we will not give you ultimate worship. You want us to render to Caesar that which is God's, and we won't do it. We will give to Caesar everything that is Caesar. It bears his image, you can have it, but you cannot have which bears the image of God. So, so he's right in saying, I, I don't get it. Don't you want taxpayers who pay their taxes? Don't you want to keep to have to hire IRS agents to go after people? Then keep us around. Let us spread our message. Like, like promote us. We're helping you out. We don't break the laws. We don't create problems. We try to solve problems in our community without bothering you. We pay our taxes, both, both, both the things that are reasonable and the ones that are unreasonable. But they're persecuted because they will not give ultimate worship to Caesar. He goes on. Notice how, how, how he addresses uh, this. But if you pay no regard to our prayer and frank explanations, we shall suffer no loss since we believe that every man will suffer punishment in eternal fire according to the merit of his deed and will render account according to the power he has received from God as Christ intimated when he said, to whom God has given more of him, more shall be required. You notice what he said there? He said, look, 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 you can come after us. You can hate us. You can persecute us. You can kill us. But if our consciences are clear, we are free people. And we understand at the end of the day, you are not accountable to me you're accountable to God himself. He's given you this position. He's given you this role. He's given you this responsibility. Fulfill it for his good or be damned. You see? What he's not doing is, all right, guys, let's revolt. Right? He's saying, here's the deal. We will love, we will serve, we will do everything. But you need to understand, our theology tells us there is accountability, not just to us, but to you. And we will pray for your success. 
But we pray that God's justice be done on this earth at the same time. Wouldn't it be nice if Christians acted like that? Instead of like our neighbors who are going insane right now? That would be nice. Well, I'm already in trouble. Let's move on. We see some mission, and that applies to, to every aspect, our marriage, our family, our workplace, our relationship to one another within the church, so on and, and so forth. Secondly, we see selflessness. Let's move quickly. Notice what he says in verse 8. Oh, no one to anything. Now, now notice that is, that is coming off what he just said. Go back up to verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes of whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love them. You see how his view of government is tied directly to his view of neighborness. Your governor and president and speaker of the house and dog catcher are made in the image of God. And everyone that works for them. Oh, no one anything. Why? Because you're paying your taxes and revenue and honor and all that. But owe them this, love, and remain in debt to love. You're paying with interest in love. Love. Love is an act of selflessness. Culturally, love is largely limited to either selfishness. That is to say that if you disagree with my life's choices and decisions and lifestyle, that is unloving. And that's just, that's just nonsense. Or we, we, we limit love to, in a, to a fickle emotion. Biblically, love is defined by selfless sacrifice in service. Our motto, of course, is Christ himself who hangs upon a cross. Anytime we ask ourselves what is love, we look to Jesus. I've, I've told you this before. Go through the, the New Testament, do a word study of the word love, and note how many times the word love is in the past tense, loved, or has a, has a past tense qualifier. Um, so for example, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's in John 3. Spoiler alert, John, Jesus dies in John 20, John 19 rather. So before the, the, the death of Jesus, John gives you the theology of love. God loved, not because he stopped loving us, but because we know he loves us because he died for us. Here in his love, presidents, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We in the past haven't loved him. He in the past has demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can't understand biblical love apart from the cross. And so what Paul does briefly in verses 8 to 10 is he, he argues that love is the fulfillment of the law. If we are to be in debt, verse 8, let it be the debt of love. Let us give love in abundance and then love some more. Having been given the love of Jesus, we, we, we are rich with love. Let us lavish this world with, with that love. And notice the commandments in verse 9 reflect the neighborly commandments. Right? I've shown you this before. You could break the Ten Commandments down into two categories, love of God and love of neighbor. So when you have uh, make no graven images, keep the Sabbath, those are laws regarding loving God. When it comes to uh, the ones he mentions here, adultery, murder, theft, coveting, those are loving of neighbor. And so, again, it's oversimplification, but still a helpful way to divide the Ten Commandments. So he says here that, that love keeps us from breaking these commandments. But, but that's, that's, that's a negative way of, of seeing it. There's a positive way to say that instead of seeing the Ten Commandments as rules, see it as the responsibility towards love. Love. Love protects us from violating these commandments. 
if we love, we will not fall into temptation to commit them. Adultery and lust are selfish acts. Murder, violence, and hate are selfish acts. Theft is a selfish act. Covetousness is a selfish act. Love, on the other hand, is selfless. I don't remember the exact context years ago when our youngest was, was a little thing. She was asking all these little questions, you know, what if this and what if that? And I remember uh, eventually uh, I just said, look, look, can I just, just end the questions here and just let you know, if we get to the point where there is no food, okay, you need to know you will eat before me. Now let's move on with our lives, Right. You know, like, because that's love. That, 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 that's what parents do. You, you, you put your kids in front of you. Well, that's true with our neighbors, isn't it? His, his general thesis here is given in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is why we, we get Christianity wrong when we think, okay, now that you came to Jesus, here's a list of rules. Dress like this at church. Talk like this out and about, and no tattoos whatsoever, you, you terrible human being, right? Vote for my party. Do this, do that, right? It's how we act. I, I, don't, I don't know about how it worked at your wedding, okay? So if your wedding's different, you can, you can uh, uh, tell me later. Uh, and I also know you, you'll be lying, but maybe your wedding was different. When I got married, you know what my wife did not do? She did not say, okay, honey, I loved our wedding, but... but there's something, but before, before we, we sign the dotted line, here's a list of 20 things, rules, that you have to keep if you want to stay married to me. She didn't do that. Nor did I give her one of those. You want to know why? Because when we vowed, I will forever and ever love you till death do us part, I vowed not to break those rules. I vowed to put her above myself. So I don't need a rule that says, don't, 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 don't commit adultery. Don't be violent. Don't be hateful. Don't be selfish. Why? Because I have vowed love. Love is selfless. And if we have love, we will have no sin. Finally, self-control. Submission, selflessness, self-control. These are the very basics of Christianity. To understand what he does in 11 to 14, we need to, we need to go back to the ancient world. The ancient world did not have what I like to refer to as adult nightlights. You know, like, like, I get my migraines from, from my mother, and, and moms are really, really bad. And she gets them worse than me. I get them more frequently than her. Um, I remember growing up, when mom would get a migraine, the smallest light would just pierce her. I've had some of those where I will never do fireworks ever again. If the church wants to do an outreach of fireworks, you can do it without me. I just will not do it. It's the worst migraine I ever had. The smallest bit of light, it just pierces your soul. And mom always got those, it seemed like, growing up. And I remember one time... We had turned all the lights out, and she wanted to, to lay in her, her, her father's old chairs after he died. And she kept saying uh, to my dad, Dad, will you turn the lights out? And dad said, all the lights are out. I have to feel through the house just to find you. She goes, no, no, no. There's a light outside on. I need you to turn it off. Well, you can't turn the light off outside, right? So dad's like, what do you want me to do? Gra grab the 22 and just go to town, right? I mean, what do you want me to do, right? We have lights. If you leave here tonight and it's dark, you can walk through the light, right? Don't recommend, but you, but you can do that. The ancient world don't have any of that. What you have is the moon and stars at night. 
So, so as you can imagine, this, this, this imagery of darkness and light is used to, 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 as a picture of good and bad. We still have this today, right? If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the orcs cannot be out in the sun. That means they're bad, right? Whereas the good people can be out in the sun, right? Light and darkness. If a storyteller wants to amp up suspense, they'll add darkness and or rain, right? When it starts raining, you know something bad's about to go down. If, if it suddenly gets dark, you know something bad's about to, to happen, right? Um, so, so he plays on this, and the Bible does this as, as well. Given that God calls light out of darkness, the theme of good and evil is often portrayed as light and darkness. So when Jesus proclaims to be a light of the world, he's claiming to be the sole source of light in a world that is completely dark. So by day... He, he, he means more than light. What, what he speaks here is, is the day of anticipation, the, the day of the Lord. And, and he's using these here. So verses 11 to 12, he speaks of the hour that has come. This looks forward to the coming of Christ. But notice this future event has a present application. The day is coming, and at the same time, the night is gone. Both are true to Paul. The day is yet to come, but because Christ is risen, night is is gone. So too, he says that in verses, the rest of verse 12 and 13, therefore let us walk in the day that is still yet to come. And to do so requires self-control. Notice this list that he has here. He mentions carousing or reverie. The word describes a common possession for Dionysius that would last long into the night with excessive feasting and all kinds of debauchery. So it became a word to describe all kinds of debauchery. He says that if, if, you, if, you, if you have come into the light and, and the, the day and you're anticipating the ultimate day, then you're going to give this sort of stuff up. Drunkenness, uh, uh, sexual morality. This, by the way, this, this describes the defilement of the marriage bed. It, the word literally means bed. So you have your debauchery, your reverie, your, 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 your carousing, drunkenness, then the bed, right? You're not going to defile the bed. Sensuality, it means unbridled lust. Quarreling and jealousies, these don't happen primarily in, at nighttime, do they? Have you noticed that? They can happen at nighttime. You can sit on the front porch with your relative, and the two of you can just gossip and be jealous all, all the day long. But it reveals darkness in your soul. And Paul says, look, look, if, if the basis of Christianity is, yes, we, we're going to be a people of submission. We're going to be a people of selflessness. We're going to be a people of self-control. And that is a dirty word. That's a dirty word today. Self-control is the robbing of freedom. The Christian comes and says, self-control is the definition of strength, and with strength comes freedom. So verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice you're taking off, self-control, you're taking those things off in order to put on these things. This isn't law at all. This is sound theology. And who is Jesus? Read the first 11 chapters of what all he has done. Make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. Clearly, everything Paul says here isn't new. Some of it needs to be articulated a little bit. It's not new. It's not hard to understand. For some reason, we have a hard time applying it. So there it is, the basics of Christianity. If we have the depth of the theology, the first 11 chapters we will show ourselves to be far greater than what we may be perceived. We will be a people of submission. We will be a people of selflessness. 
we will be a people of self-control. If it's freedom you're looking for, joy that you're longing for, peace that you're wanting, strength you're wanting to show, here's the secret. And it's rooted in the gospel of Jesus, who justified us, one, chapters 1 to 4, sanctified us, chapters 5 and 6, and set us free, chapters 8 to 11. That's the key. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.